Good morning, everyone. My name is Robbie Mills. I see somebody left me a little Ricola mint up here. That's very nice. Um, it's great to be with y'all. Uh, Redeemer, Redeemer Arlington. Uh, I, I know a lot of you. I don't know all of you. Um, I know a lot of you know me or at least have known of us, uh, have prayed for me, prayed for my family, prayed for our church. And uh, it's such an honor and treat to get to be here with y'all today, um, here in this place. And uh, I was trying to think, I think the last time I was with y'all, maybe it was like five or six years, it was definitely pre-COVID. Um, but in any event, it's wonderful uh, to have the chance to open up uh, this passage in Luke. We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 14. I think it's going to be on the screen behind me, but, you know, if you want to look at it on your, in your, on your Bible, analog, or on your phone, it's all good. Um, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows what's coming for him. The people of Jerusalem don't quite know what's coming for them, but Jesus knows what he's headed to do on his way to Jerusalem. And this particular passage comes from a dinner party. Uh, it's really a Sabbath meal. Uh, Jesus has probably been preaching at the synagogue. And the rulers of the synagogue have him over uh, to eat afterwards. And there's a miracle. Uh, there's several parables. But we're going to look at this last of the three parables, which is... Uh, Maybe it will be familiar to you. Maybe for some of you, it's your very first time hearing it. Let me invite you to stand up and receive this word of God, which is powerful and perfect and what we need to hear. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, now here's the parable. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let me ask you to pray with me, and we'll dive in. Lord, uh, this is an incredible story from the mind and heart of Christ himself. 
and it is rich and powerful and ministers to us, and it both challenges and affirms. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us wherever we're at this morning. We pray that uh, your word would not uh, return to you void and empty, but it would accomplish your purposes in our lives. For, Lord, your word is like a mighty hammer that falls and cracks the hard hearts of man. Would you do that for us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I was just realizing as I was reading this how high up this little lectern is. Obviously, this was built for an Arkema. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it's great to be with you all today. Uh, wish my family could be here. My wife is Kelly. We have two daughters, uh, a 10-year-old and a 3-year-old. And this is, uh, they were born, um, their birthdays are at least with, within four days of each other. Uh, it, this is our birthday weekend. Our, our little girl turned three on Thursday and my, my oldest turns 10 tomorrow. So we've been in birthday mode and uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. My daughter had a... Um, she had a French pottery party yesterday. We were, we were painting pottery, so, you know, these, dad girl all the way. Um, but I want to say, I do want to say thanks to Redeemer Arlington for um, seven years of prayer and support and encouragement, um, sometimes from afar, sometimes uh, from, from near. Uh, Ryan Arkema and I transferred into this region, into Dallas, the very same presbytery, um, so I have always felt a strong sense of connection to you guys, and uh, all the more so as I've been following the move um, that you've made. Um, it's actually a season of tremendous transition, isn't it? <laughs> Understatement. Uh, my, uh, what brought me here was to be a, a church planter in the East Dallas Richardson-Garland area, um, as was mentioned, we worked with refugees and immigrants. We came here to work with refugees and immigrants. Uh, our city, our metroplex, one of the richest parts of our, our city is uh, the immigrant population, the diaspora stories um, that have brought men and women from every continent uh, to make this home. And we felt that ourselves and uh, planted a church uh, for seven years that uh, served uh, the diaspora community of Dallas, and um, last October we brought it to a close. Um, we were just all running on fumes, and um, there was no presenting cause, but it was just the time to, to bring things to an end. Um, we still have great relationships with all the families. Uh, our church was always uh, this interesting hybrid of um, uh, East African and Iranian and Korean and uh, Oklahoman, <laughs> and I'm from North Carolina, so you know. <laughs> what, who are we? We were we were like Acts 13. We were um, we were Christians. That was our tribe, but um, we brought that to a close. And I've been working really for the last uh, spring, since the spring. wasn't sure what we were going to do, but I've been working for uh, two different missionary organizations, MTW, which is the PCA's. Overseas Missions Agency, and that's going to be well known to many of you, but um, I'm, I'm working with our hub. I sense a little bit of 
languishing and reticence when it comes to mission. And uh, every experience I've ever had in the PCA has been uh, a missionary experience. So I don't want to see us let go of that obedience to the Great Commission, something that is essential to who we are and our, and our church. Um, I also work for Third Mill, uh, which may be known to some of you. It is a Bible education resource. You can think of it as like seminary on an app or seminary on a flash drive, uh, but it is designed for the global church. And um, I, I brought some, some gear, some swag for y'all, and I want you to please uh, go out that door, take, take a pen or a sticker or a flyer, and uh, if you would, just think of those uh, excellent organizations, and uh, maybe you and a group can pray for them. Uh, but yeah, all, I know now, am I, when I'm coming as the guest guy, I'm going to bring some presents for everybody, so uh, please take that. But season of transition for me, season of transition for y'all. And um, some of you may be like, I don't know, if this is your first Sunday visiting ever. I hope, I hope that's true for someone here, but Lord willing, there's going to be a whole lot more newness in the life of Redeemer Arlington. And um, it was really fun for me to get to come and visit with Ryan over the last couple years as uh, y'all were renovating this building, sold the old place, took this leap, and uh, here we are. So um, I, I was walking around when it was studs in the dust, kind of trying to see what, what was underway, and it was so cool to come just a few weeks ago and see the place, and then also find out that, you know, Ryan is leaving, and, uh, you know, great sadness for me too. But I want to take a minute to reflect a little bit about this transition with you. Come not just as a church planner, I also serve on our uh, Presbytery Church Planting Committee, the Mission to North America. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about the story of Redeemer Arlington in some interesting ways, and honestly, the transition that y'all have made is not that different from the transition that many of our churches will need to make for the 21st century. I'm actually very excited for where Redeemer Arlington sits today, um, and I know that's true for many of you. Now, <clears throat> I want to think for just a moment, and I know we've got the text, we're going to get there, but I just want to think about the building with you for a moment. I am not an architect, I'm not a builder, but let me give you my uh, non-professional opinion. I don't know what you guys have <laughs> constructed or what you thought you were constructing, but let me encourage you uh, to not think of this as a church. You haven't built a church. You have not built a co-working space. You haven't even built the, Lord willing, trendy new college hotspot. What you guys have built, Redeemer Arlington, is a banquet hall. This is a banquet hall. Uh, this place is for feasting. It's for celebrating. Coming to the table of Jesus Christ. Inviting neighbors to feast with you. So I want to congratulate you on your banquet hall. It's beautiful. And that's pretty much my whole point. We could all go home now. <laughs> this is a banquet hall. Don't think of it as a church. Um, who is God going to bring? Who do you 
long and pray that God might bring to this banquet hall. Who will you invite? Don't wait for the new pastor. Uh, I've had the chance over 20 years of being part of the PCA in some backwater places like New England. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's not this steady supply of pastors in some of the richest times in the life of the people of God is when (laughs) waiting for the, the, the senior guy, but waiting collectively, coming together in prayer, earnest urgency for the sense of purpose. Don't wait for the senior guy. Who is God going to bring through you to this banquet hall for you to host, for you to feed, for you to regale, to comfort, to pray for? You have embarked on an awesome adventure, and I, having watched it from afar, have been so inspired by that. But now that you've built the banquet hall, what next? And that's where Luke 14 uh, is a tremendous help. These three parables all underscore that life in the kingdom of God, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom, life in the kingdom of God is like a feast. And uh, you can read the first two parables. They are profound, immensely challenging, beautiful. But we are zooming in on the final parable, Luke 14, the parable of the great banquet. And the big idea is simply this. God is on a mission to bring hungry people to his table. It's God's mission. The Missio Dei. God is on a mission to bring hungry people to his house, to his table, to feast them. And that might mean first-time feasters. That might mean people who've been feasting at the table with Jesus for a lifetime. But that is God's purpose and plan. The scriptures tell that and make that very clear, Old Testament to new. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Rich wine, milk without money, without price. Ezekiel 34, I, I myself will gather my lost sheep and I will feed them in good pasture. John, Jesus speaking in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The very end of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water. Life, I'm sorry, the spring of the water of life without payment. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears says, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life come and take. Like Start to finish. The mission of God is to bring hungry people to his table. But in this parable, there's a catch, isn't there? What happens when the master says, it's time, the feast is ready? We see the refusal, and we see there's this shocking twist in the story, isn't there? 
undeniable tragedy here, but there's also unexpected redemption. And as we look at this story, there's three things we're going to key in on within uh, the framework of of the passage. And that is the immediacy of the invitation if you want to circle a word in your, in your bulletin, or actually, we don't have that in there, do we? So write this down in your notes. The word now, <laughs> that's the key word, the immediacy of the invitation. Uh, we're going to look, secondly, at the scandal of skipping out. The key word there is excuses. But lastly, we're going to look at the promise of the full table. And the key word there is full. So um, we're going to look at this ancient story and ask the Lord to help us apply it now and going forward. Um, First, let's get into this invitation and the immediacy of this invitation. Um, Said a little bit about the the story, the parable that Jesus tells here. Of course, this, it's really important to once again appreciate the context as Jesus is telling this parable story, uh, this novella, you could think of it that way, uh, he is in the midst of a literal feast. <laughs> he is the guest of honor being welcomed into the home of uh, the rulers of the synagogue, the, the local rabbis. He is being feasted himself. And uh, there is a, t- but it's a tense situation because there is a conflict that is being negotiated. The, the parables are Jesus' way of contradicting the expectations and the small grasp of the kingdom of God that the Pharisees have, the legalists have. Um, what happened that caused the conflict in this dinner party? The rulers of the synagogue bring in a man with a skin disease— which, is, which means that's ritual uncleanness in the midst of they can't do that. And they're going to test Jesus. They're trying to trap him. What does Jesus do? He heals the man. He touches the man by healing and, and, and miraculously heals them. And that sets the, the Pharisees once again aflame. Uh, they're angry and up in arms because Jesus is healed on the Sabbath. He's touched an unclean man. But more uh, ominously, <laughs> the, the deeper undercurrent in this conflict is the sense of, of honor and the Pharisees sensing that they are being contradicted. Verse 15, uh, one of these other guests just kind of pipes up, doesn't really know what he's saying, but he just kind of, after hearing the first two parables, Mm, how about them cowboys? <laughs> uh, he says, blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's kind of this filler statement. He, it's true. It's actually, he spoke truer than he, under, than he understands. And that is the prompt for Jesus to give this final parable, showing the heart of God. Um, I said that there is an immediacy in the invitation. Let, let me just explain to you how the feast in, in this time and place, how feasting in this culture works. It's important to, to get some of these details because it looks really different uh, from how we would throw a dinner party today. Uh, this is an enormous banquet. Jesus in the story says that many are invited. 
And that's a, it's a key detail because that means this is a huge affair that costs lots of money to the host, to the master of the feast. Uh, imagine a village. Imagine uh, a, a small town. And just think, large party in a small town. Everyone knows in that place. And I don't know if that's your background or uh, you can relate to that, but small town, large party, everyone is aware of, of the, the celebration underway. And <clears throat> it's, it's a crucial point because that means this is a very public uh, undertaking. Now, I don't know, um, have any of you, it's we're just coming out of wedding season, or maybe we're going into wedding season, I don't know. Uh, have any of y'all hosted a, a large party before? Um, actually, let's do a poll. H- how many of you have hosted a party for 25 people before? Uh, how about 50? How many of you have hosted a party for 100 people? Okay, keep the hands up for just one, one more second. You can go and find the people with their hands up and ask them how involved, how much planning, how anxiety produced, how difficult is it to throw a huge party? Maybe it's a wedding party. Maybe it's a wedding reception. Maybe it's the reception. How much goes into the planning? We can relate to that in our culture, but here's some more background info that you have to really appreciate in their their context. Um, You have to know how many people are coming if you're the host of an ancient Near Eastern feast. Why? Because it's your responsibility to provide food and drink. And oh, by the way, <laughs> who's going to cater the, the thing? Is, is there DoorDash? Is there Uber Eats that you can call up to help you host the party? No. It's your responsibility to acquire livestock for the food. So you have to know how many people are going to come so that you have adequate food. You can't just run to uh, the, the, you know, the nearest Taco Cabana Uh, when (laughs) all the guests show up. The the meat is the food. (laughs) Uh, It has to be prepared that day. You have to wake up early in the morning, slaughter the animal, spend, it's an incredible amount of work. I'm sure some of you are hunters and maybe you are fishers and you've uh, had to prepare an animal. It's an enormous amount of work, and it has to be done that day so that when the servant goes to the invited guest and he says, now it's ready, (laughs) what all has been going on behind the scenes to make the feast ready? An enormous amount of work. Um, We actually have all kinds of documents from uh, this time. Uh, If you were hosting a party in the ancient Near East and you were going to have two to four guests, Two chickens is what you need. Five to eight guests, you could serve a duck. Ten to 15 guests, you're going to need to get a baby goat. And if you've got 15 to 35 people, a sheep. And if you've got 35 and up, you're going to need to get some calves. The food has to be prepared. One um, scholar from Egypt said, The decision regarding the kind of meat and the amount is made on the basis of the number of accepted invitations. And once the countdown starts, it can't be stopped. Once the meat has been slaughtered, you can't stop the countdown. The appropriate animal is killed, and it must be eaten that night. 
Okay, why am I telling you all this? Because there is an immediacy of the invitation. Um, verse 17, all the preparations are made and the message is, is it, it's gone out to all the people who have RSVP'd and said, I'll be there. Now it's ready. Won't you come? Now, and call this the nowness. This is the now factor, the timeliness of this invitation. And up to this point in the parable, suspend what you know happens after that. But up to this point, put yourself in the brain space of the host. What is the host feeling? What are, what are you feeling as you come up to uh, the day of, or maybe the, uh, the wedding party dinner? What do we call that on the Friday night, the night before? Rehearsal dinner. Think about the anticipation that, that you have as you get ready. Now, yes, nerves, but think about the anticipation, the sweetest part. I've been making all these deta- exquisite details, the finest food, the richest wine. It's going to be ready. And okay, now we can come on in. The lavish banquet is ready. And all these invitations and all of these RSVPs which have gone out. That's time, guys. Won't you come in and eat? Here's the simple question to ask yourself. As you read the scriptures, as you sense where God is working in your own heart, in your own family, certainly in the life of the church, where's the immediacy? What is God saying now, Redeemer? Not, Not six months from now, not two years from now when we get our stuff sorted out, but now there's a feast. It's ready. But there is a twist in Jesus's parable, isn't there? Main point two, the scandal of skipping out. There's really two things we have to break down in the response of these people who've been invited. Why (laughs) and what do we mean by their skipping out? And why is it a scandal? Um, Skipping out, missing out, got other things going on. Busy, busy, busy in Dallas, Texas, <laughs> right? We can, relate to the, we can relate to the excuses. We can profoundly relate to them. Um, I once had the opportunity to listen to a man named Gary Haugen. Um, that name may be familiar to you. He is, I think he's still the president of International Justice Mission, uh, works in uh, Washington, D.C. and all across the world uh, with... Um, fighting modern-day slavery and rescuing uh, people who are enslaved in India and all kinds of traffic, human trafficking. I once heard uh, Gary Haugen speak at a dinner, and he told the story of uh, that, that's been powerful and stayed with me um, all these years. He basically told the story of when he was a, a boy uh, growing up in Washington State. His father took him and his older brother hiking one morning, and they were going to go hike this mountain. And they got to the visitor center, and younger brother Gary said, "Um, I don't want to go. I don't want to go on the hike. I want to stay here in the visitor center. And as Gary told the story of spending the day in the visitor center looking at the little stuffed bear and, you know, like the little, all the things in the visitor center, 
And then his father and older brother came back, faces flushed with adventure. He said he realized, even as a kid, that he had gone on the trip, but he had missed the adventure. And that has always stayed with me. Going on the trip, but missing the adventure. (laughs) Missing out. We (laughs) actually are terrified of missing out today. You've heard of FOMO, the fear of missing out in the social media age. We know and we feel deeply in our bones the terror of missing out. There is an undeniable tragic element to missing out. <laughs> we don't, none of us want to miss out. So why are these guys skipping out? Verse 18, Jesus uh, narrates these three regrets that they give and says they all begin to make excuses. And what are the three excuses? One of them buys a field. He has to go take care of the field. One of them uh, has just bought five yoke of oxen. He's just acquired uh, demanding per, you know, personal property. He's got to take care of that. One of them has just uh, gotten married, and he has obligations. Now, you and I, as modern people, hear those excuses, and part of our flesh, part of our instinct is to say, well, it's really to say, like, these kind of things happen in a busy life. Like, you, you know, don't be shocked when somebody can't make it. <laughs> he's got business obligations. He's got a, it's responsible stewardship to take care of what he's got to take care of. Uh, the third one, the, the, the newly married couple, um, that is actually, <laughs> all three of these are deeply offensive. That third one, which is hinting euphemistically at marital relationship is even more scandalous. It says when the, when the master, and I'm not going to get into the details of all three, but none of the excuses hold water. In an ancient Near Eastern context, before you would even enter into a negotiation about acquiring a field, you know that field like the back of your hand. You have to because it's an arid desert. You're not going to just randomly put down, throw down some money on a ranch in West Texas and say, yeah, let me, go, let me go check it out now. All three of these excuses are offensive because they are premeditated attempts to say, no, we're not, we're not doing it. There is a coordinated <laughs> effort underway here. It says all alike began to make excuses. We don't just have these three people out of the many who were invited making excuses. No, there is a conspiracy afoot to say, actually, and maybe, maybe it's well-organized, but you know how these things tend to go. These are much, usually much more subtle things. Actually, we're kind of, we're out. Now, they don't say it directly like that. They actually are self-deceived in appearing to give plausible excuses. But what does the master do when he hears their rationale, their reasoning? He's furious. He's angered. Why? Why is he angry? Is he wrong to be angry with them? No. He has prepared the best for them. And at the moment of (laughs) the, the height, the readiness for the feast, they skip out. It's a scandal. It's deeply offensive. It's like, imagine you go to a wedding and the maid of honor 
at the time right before the bride <laughs> is set to step up the stairs, the maid of honor just walks off stage left. How scandal! How you would that would it'd be an unforgettable wedding. But what if the entire wedding party did that? All the groomsmen and all the bridesmaids. This is a coordinated public scandal, intentionally <laughs> offensive and painful. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the host. How do you handle this diss? How do you handle this public shaming? 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Isaiah 53 He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And I love the connection the writer of Hebrews makes with Jesus' mistreatment, the master's mistreatment, and our experience. Suffering like Christ. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In the face of scandal, how do you respond when you're the one that's been shown up, when you're the one that's been betrayed, when you're the one who has prepared your best and has it kicked back, spit back in your face? How does this master respond? Oh, <laughs> we'll get to that in just a moment. But we... We tend, we always want to side with the good guy, but who are we in this story? What does our sin do to our host, our master, our king? Sin always separates. Sin always excludes. What's going on in the hearts of the people making the excuses? What's going on in our hearts? Half-heartedness? Double-mindedness? One foot in, one foot out. Think about Abraham. Abraham went halfway. He left his home in Ur in the south, and he went halfway to the promised land. He was, ha- he was halfway there. <laughs> and when he's in Haran and he started making his life and got comfortable again, God says, get thee out, Abraham, and go to the land that I'll show you. Abraham was half-hearted like me and you. Think about Solomon, who spent seven years building the temple, but you remember how, much, how long he spent on his own home? His own palace? It's a really instructive ratio. He spent 14 years on his own, on his own home. <laughs> Double-mindedness. Whose kingdom are we living for? Who, whose feast are we most interested in? Adam and Eve. The... <laughs> The original self-deception. You know, actually, I'm not sure the feast that this maker, this creator has made for us, I'm not sure it's that great. Actually, there's a better feast to be had with, with we, when we're the host, when we're the masters. Such self-deception in the refusal to come and eat the richest food and the finest wine. Now, it's tragic, and I was almost going to call it, I originally was calling it tragic, but it's scandalous. 
And so lastly, how does this host respond? We've seen the immediacy of the invite, the scandal of skipping out, but lastly, the promise of the full table. Oh, it's so beautiful and so timely, not just for Redeemer Arlington, not just for the PCA, not just for evangelicals in America. This is timely for the people of God. How do you respond to the shame of Christ, experiencing that yourself? After the host is dissed, this very public scandal, what does Jesus say the host does next? We get two new scenes, two new rounds of invitations. Verse 21, the master sends his servant. He says, go out quickly to the streets, to the lanes of the city, the back alleys. (laughs) Bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. In, in In your own street, within the city, near neighbors, next door neighbors, the unlikely ones. All of us actually have, I don't know if you've noticed this in like advertisements, at least for the last decade. There's like this picture you see of the long feasting table and you got the little twinkly lights and, you know, this lavish feast and flowers and there's usually some hipster in a derby hat. (laughs) That picture, that's the picture of the feast that our day and age hungers after. But you know who's not at that table? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Jesus says, this master tells his servants, go bring in the outsiders. Go bring in the unseen. Go bring in the least of these. Uh, Just to make an obvious point, (laughs) Jesus is not going woke here. (laughs) This is not uh, him trying to curry favor with anyone. This is the master saying, I have prepared the best of food and the finest of fare, and I'm my table will be filled. Go to the people who know they're hungry. Invite them to come in. Redeemer, bring them. They're not so self-deluded in their priorities. If you invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, they will come. So invite them. (laughs) Presbyterians in America, (laughs) invite them. The feast is here. The banquet hall's ready. Who's hungry? Let's eat. There is this still, this little further pressing, though, that the host in verse 22 shows us. It's very possible and actually quite likely. I have spent the last seven years going to some of these. And, you know, not plenty of people also refuse <laughs> When the invitation is made, plenty of refugee and immigrant friends have said, ah, later, later, later. Even here, there's a, there's a little nuance that, you know, when the servant goes to the port in the city, some of them still refuse. And so the master once again doubles down. He says, then go to the highways and the hedges. Go to the outs- real outsiders. Cross the dividing wall of hostility. The word, in the Greek, the word um, hedges can also be translated partition. It's the same word that's used in the book of Ephesians when it says the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been knocked down in Christ. 
go cross, <laughs> go to the Gentiles. Go to our enemies. Go to the ones we hate. Go to the ones our tribe. Hutu and Tutsi. I spent a lot of time working with Rwandans. Can the grace of Jesus Christ bring Hutus and Tutsis together to feast at the table? Go to the highways and hedges. Compel them to come in. It's not saying force them. It's not saying trick them. It's not saying overrule them. It's saying convince them that they are wanted, that the, that, that the table is for them. God's invitation to the banquet of Israel's Messiah is even available to foreigners and enemies. So who are you in this word, this, this elaborate, rich story, this parable? We're not the host. And I hope that we're not the refusers. And basic Christian understanding of our own sin, <laughs> what it does to us is it makes us the outsider. It actually makes us, the, we, we're, the, we're the ones that are the furthest away. We're the last ones that ought to be at the table. That's who we are in this story. But there is this last final, almost puzzling, quixotic verse that I was actually avoiding, <laughs> have been avoiding in previous times even preaching this sermon. Verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The gospel is hidden in that statement. Because, <clears throat> who is Jesus in this story? Jesus is the one who actually, <laughs> though he was the ultimate guest of honor, though he was the ultimate master of ceremonies, though he was the ultimate host, the bread of life, <laughs> what, did he in, what did he go through? He actually is the one who was willing to leave the feast. He was the one who was willing to not cling to his rightful seat at, in the seat of honor, to not cling to that, but to let go, unclench his grip, his right, and be cast out. He's the one who went hungry as he hung on the cross and said, I hunger, I thirst. He's the one who <laughs> became the exile so that you and I might have a seat at the table. The one who didn't taste the banquet as he took on the penalty and the punishment for our sin and our refusals, not just one refusal, over and over and over again. He paid the price of admission for us to come to the banquet. It's so beautiful. And I want to leave it right there, but do you know, I said, the promise of the full table. The table, there's still open seats today, <laughs> August 20th, 2023. There are still open seats at this table 
And Jesus has made ready a seat for sons and daughters at UTA throughout the mid-cities. The unseen, the overlooked, the never noticed before, the least likely to come, even the Jerry Joneses, (laughs) have a seat at this table if Redeemer, if our churches will go and invite them and (laughs) say, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Please pray with me. Oh, Jesus, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. (laughs) I know that. Forgive, Forgive all that. Help us see plainly that it is your prerogative and your intention and your desire that the hungry would come in, that the hungry would be fed, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would find their appetites satiated as they feast with you, upon you, in you, for you. Lord, I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters of Redeemer Arlington. I pray, Father God, for all the nuts and bolts and all the mechanics and all the planning and programming and this new season, the adjusting to the new digs. (laughs) But Father, the, the real prayer is that we would be lockstep with you, that we would draw our sense of purpose and clarity and stability from feasting with you, from knowing your delight that we're, that we're here, that you have made every way possible for us to come to the table. And Lord, as we prepare to do that, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to heighten our understanding and our hunger. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.